Chapter Thirteen of the Life and Adventures of Sir Lancelot Greaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Life and Adventures of Sir Lancelot Greaves by Tobias Smollett. Chapter Thirteen in which our knight is tantalized with a transient glimpse of felicity the success of our adventurer which we have particularized in the last chapter could not fail of enhancing his character not only among those who knew him but also among the people of the town to whom he was not an utter stranger the populace surrounded the house and testified their approbation in loud huzzas Captain Crow was more than ever inspired with veneration for his admired patron, and more than ever determined to pursue his footsteps in the road of chivalry. Philip and his friend the lawyer could not help conceiving an affection, and even a profound esteem, for the exalted virtue, the person, and accomplishments of the knight, dashed as they were with a mixture of extravagance and insanity even sir lancelot himself was elevated to an extraordinary degree of self-complacency on the fortunate issue of his adventure and became more and more persuaded that a knight-errant's profession might be exercised even in england to the advantage of the community the only person of the company who seemed unanimated with the general satisfaction was mr thomas clark he had not without good reason laid it down as a maxim that knight-errantry and madness were synonymous terms and that madness though exhibited in the most advantageous and agreeable light could not change its nature but must continue a perversion of sense to the end of the chapter he perceived the additional impression which the brain of his uncle had sustained from the happy manner in which the benevolence of sir lancelot had so lately operated and began to fear it would be in a little time quite necessary to have recourse to a commission of lunacy which might not only disgrace the family of the crows but also tend to invalidate the settlement which the captain had already made in favour of our young lawyer perplexed with these cogitations mr clark appealed to our adventurer's own reflection he expatiated upon the bad consequences that would attend his uncle's perseverance in the execution of a scheme so foreign to his faculties and entreated him for the love of god to divert him from his purpose either by arguments or authority as of all mankind the knight alone had gained such an ascendancy over his spirits that he would listen to his exhortations with respect and submission our adventurer was not so mad but that he saw and owned the rationality of these remarks he readily undertook to employ all his influence with crow to dissuade him from his extravagant design and seized the first opportunity of being alone with the captain to signify his sentiments on this subject captain crow said he you are then determined to proceed in the course of knight-errantry 
I am, replied the seaman, with God's help, do you see, and the assistance of wind and weather. What dost thou talk of wind and weather? cried the knight, in an elevated tone of affected transport. Without the help of heaven, indeed, we are all vanity, imbecility, weakness, and wretchedness. But if thou art resolved to embrace the life of an errant, let me not hear thee so much as whisper a doubt, a wish, a hope, or sentiment with respect to any other obstacle, which wind or weather, fire or water, sword or famine, danger or disappointment, may throw in the way of thy career. When the duty of thy profession calls, thou must singly rush upon innumerable hosts of armed men. Thou must storm the breach in the mouth of batteries loaded with death and destruction, while, every step thou movest, thou art exposed to the horrible explosion of subterranean mines, which, being sprung, will whirl thee aloft in the air, a mangled course to feed the fowls of heaven. Thou must leap into the abyss of dreadful caves and caverns, replete with poisonous toads and hissing serpents. Thou must plunge into seas of burning sulphur. Thou must launch upon the ocean in a crazy bark, when the foaming billows roll mountains high, when the lightning flashes, the thunder roars, and the howling tempest blows as if it would commix the jarring elements of air and water, earth and fire, and reduce all nature to the original anarchy of chaos. Thus involved, thou must turn thy prow full against the fury of the storm, and stem the boisterous surge to thy destined port, though at the distance of a thousand leagues thou must... Avast, avast, brother! exclaimed the impatient crow. You've got into the high latitudes, d'ye see? If so be as you spank it away at that rate, her dad, I can't continue in tow. We must cast off the rope, or wear timbers. As for your oasts and breeches, and hurling aloft, d'ye see? Your caves and caverns, whistling toads and serpents, burning brimstone and foaming billows, we must take our hap. I value em not a rotten ratline. But as for sailing in the wind's eye, brother, you must give me leave. No offence, I hope. I pretend to be a thoroughbred seaman, you see, and I'd be damned if you or e'er an arrant that broke biscuit ever sailed in a three-mast vessel within five points of the wind, allowing for variation and leeway. No, no, brother, none of your tricks upon travellers. I ain't now to learn my compass. Tricks! cried the knight, starting up, and laying his hand on the pummel of his sword. What? Suspect my honour? Crow, supposing him to be really incensed, interrupted him with great earnestness, saying, Nay, don't. What a pose. Adds bump lines. I didn't go to give you the lie, brother. Smite my limbs. I only said as how to sail in the wind's eye was impossible. And I say unto thee, resumed the knight, nothing is impossible to a true knight-errant, inspired and animated by love. And I say unto thee, hallooed Crow, 
if so be as how love pretends to turn his horse-holes to the wind he's no seaman d'ye see but a snotty-nosed lubberly boy that knows not a cat from a capstan i don't he that does not believe that love is an infallible pilot must not embark upon the voyage of chivalry for next to the protection of heaven it is from love that the knight derives all his prowess and glory the bare name of his mistress invigorates his arm the remembrance of her beauty infuses into his breast the most heroic sentiments of courage while the idea of her chastity hedges him round like a charm and renders him invulnerable to the sword of his antagonist a knight without a mistress is a mere nonentity or at least a monster in nature a pilot without a compass a ship without rudder and must be driven to and fro upon the waves of discomfiture and disgrace and that be all replied the sailor i told you before as how i've got a sweetheart as true a hearted girl as ever swung in canvas what though she may have started a hoop in rolling that signifies nothing i'll warrant her tight as a nutshell she must in your opinion be a paragon either of beauty or virtue now as you have given up the last you must uphold her charms unequalled and her person without parallel i do i do uphold her she will sail upon a parallel as well as e'er a frigate that was rigged to the northward of fifty at that rate she must rival the attractions of her whom i adore but that i say is impossible the perfections of my aurelia are altogether supernatural and as two suns cannot shine together in the same sphere with equal splendour so i affirm and will prove with my body that your mistress in comparison with mine is as a glow-worm to the meridian sun a rushlight to the full moon or a stale mackerel's eye to a pearl of orient harkee brother you might give good words however and once we fall a-jawing d'ye see i can heave out as much bilge-water as another and since you besmear my sweetheart Basilia, i can as well bedaub your mistress aurelia whom i value no more than old junk pork-slush or stinking stockfish enough enough such blasphemy shall not pass unchastised in consideration of us having fed from the same table and maintained together a friendly though short intercourse i will not demand the combat before you are duly prepared proceed to the first great town where you can be furnished with horse and harnessing with arms offensive and defensive provide a trusty squire assume a motto and device declare yourself a son of chivalry and proclaim the excellence of her who rules your heart i shall fetch a compass and wheresoever we may chance to meet let us engage with equal arms in mortal combat that shall decide and determine this dispute so saying our adventurer stalked with great solemnity into another apartment while crow being sufficiently irritated snapped his fingers in token of defiance 
honest crow thought himself scurvily used by a man whom he had cultivated with such humility and veneration and after an incoherent ejaculation of sea oaths went in quest of his nephew in order to make him acquainted with this unlucky transaction in the meantime sir launcelot having ordered supper retired into his own chamber and gave a loose to the most tender emotions of his heart he recollected all the fond ideas which had been excited in the course of his correspondence with the charming aurelia he remembered with horror the cruel letter he had received from that young lady containing a formal renunciation of his attachment so unsuitable to the whole tenor of her character and conduct he revolved the late adventure of the coach and the declaration of mr clark with equal eagerness and astonishment and was seized with the most ardent desire of unravelling a mystery so interesting to the predominant passion of his heart all these mingled considerations produced a kind of ferment in the economy of his mind which subsided into a profound reverie compounded of hope and perplexity from this trance he was waked by the arrival of his squire who entered the room with the blood trickling over his nose and stood before him without speaking when the knight asked whose livery was that he wore he replied tis your honour's own livery i received it on your account and hope as you will quit the score then he proceeded to inform his master that two officers of the army having come into the kitchen insisted upon having for their supper the victuals which sir launcelot had bespoke and that he the squire objecting to the proposal one of them had seized the poker and basted him with his own blood that when he told them he belonged to a knight-errant and threatened them with the vengeance of his master they cursed and abused him calling him sancho panza and such dogs names and bade him tell his master don quixote that if he made any noise they would confine him to his cage and lie with his mistress dulcinea to be sure sir said he they thought you as great a nincompoop as your squire trim-tram like master like man but i hope as how you will give them a roland for their oliver miscreant cried the knight you have provoked the gentlemen with your impertinence and they have chastised you as you deserve i tell thee crabshaw they have saved me the trouble of punishing thee with my own hands and well it is for thee sinner as thou art that they themselves have performed the office for had they complained to me of thy insolence and rusticity by heaven i would have made thee an example to all the impudent squires upon the face of the earth hence then avaunt caitiff let his majesty's officers who perhaps are fatigued with hard duty in the service of their country comfort themselves with the supper which was intended for me and leave me undisturbed to my own meditations timothy did not require a repetition of this command which he forthwith obeyed growling within himself that henceforward he should let every cuckold wear his own horns but he could not help entertaining some doubts with respect to the courage of his master who 
he supposed was one of those hectors who have their fighting days but are not at all times equally prepared for the combat the knight having taken a slight repast retired to his repose and had for some time enjoyed a very agreeable slumber when he was startled by a knocking at his chamber door i beg your honour's pardon said the landlady but there are two uncivil persons in the kitchen who have well-nigh turned my whole house topsy-turvy not content with laying violent hands on your honour's supper they want to be rude to two young ladies who are just arrived and have called for a post-chaise to go on they are afraid to open their chamber door to get out and the young lawyer is like to be murdered for taking the lady's part sir lancelot though he refused to take notice of the insult which had been offered to himself no sooner heard of the distress of the ladies than he started up huddled on his clothes and girding his sword to his loins advanced with a deliberate pace to the kitchen where he perceived thomas clark warmly engaged in altercation with a couple of young men dressed in regimentals who with a peculiar air of arrogance and ferocity treated him with great insolence and contempt tom was endeavouring to persuade them that in the constitution of england the military was always subservient to the civil power and that their behaviour to a couple of helpless young women was not only unbecoming gentlemen but expressly contrary to the law inasmuch as they might be sued for an assault on an action of damages to this remonstrance the two heroes in red replied with a volley of dreadful oaths intermingled with threats which put the lawyer in some pain for his ears while one thus endeavoured to intimidate honest tom clark the other thundered at the door of the apartment to which the ladies had retired demanding admittance but received no other answer than a loud shriek our adventurer advancing to this uncivil champion accosted him thus in a grave and solemn tone assuredly i could not have believed except upon the evidence of my own senses that persons who have the appearance of gentlemen and bear his majesty's honourable commission in the army could behave so wide of the decorum due to society of a proper respect to the laws of that humanity which we owe to our fellow-creatures and that delicate regard for the fair sex which ought to prevail in the breast of every gentleman and which in particular dignifies the character of a soldier to whom shall that weaker though more amiable part of the creation fly for protection if they are insulted and outraged by those whose more immediate duty it is to afford them security and defence from injury and violence what right have you or any man upon earth to excite riot in a public inn which may be deemed a temple sacred to hospitality to disturb the quiet of your fellow guests some of them perhaps exhausted by fatigue some of them invaded by distemper to interrupt the king's lieges in their course of journeying upon their lawful occasions above all what motive but wanton barbarity could prompt you to violate the apartment and terrify the tender hearts of two helpless young ladies travelling no doubt upon some cruel emergency which compels them unattended 
to encounter in the night the dangers of the highway? Arky, Don Bethlehem, said the captain, strutting up and cocking his hat in the face of our adventurer. You may be mad as ever a straw-crowned monarch in Moorfields, for aught I care, but damn, don't you be saucy, otherwise I shall dub your worship with a good stick across your shoulders. How, petulant boy, cried the knight, since you are so ignorant of urbanity, I will give you a lesson that you shall not easily forget. So saying, he unsheathed his sword, and called upon the soldier to draw in his defence. The reader may have seen the physiognomy of a stockholder at Jonathan's, when the rebels were at Derby, or the features of a bard when accosted by a bailiff, or the countenance of an alderman when his banker stops payment. If he has seen either of these phenomena, he may conceive the appearance that was now exhibited by the visage of the ferocious captain, when the naked sword of Sir Lancelot glanced before his eyes. Far from attempting to produce his own, which was of unconscionable length, he stood motionless as a statue, staring with the most ghastly look of terror and astonishment. His companion, who partook of his panic, seeing matters brought to a very serious crisis, interposed with a crestfallen countenance assuring sir lancelot that they had no intention to quarrel and what they had done was entirely for the sake of the frolic by such frolics cried the knight you become nuisances to society bring yourselves into contempt and disgrace the corps to which you belong i now perceive the truth of the observation that cruelty always resides with cowardice my contempt is changed into compassion and as you are probably of good families, I must insist upon this young man's drawing his sword, and acquitting himself in such a manner as may screen him from the most infamous censure which an officer can undergo. Lack a day, sir, said the other, we are no officers, but prentices to two London haberdashers, travellers for orders. Captain is a good travelling name and we have dressed ourselves like officers to procure more respect upon the road. The knight said he was very glad, for the honour of the service, to find they were impostors, though they deserved to be chastised for arrogating to themselves an honourable character which they had not spirit to sustain. These words were scarce pronounced when Mr. Clark, approaching one of the bravados, who had threatened to crop his ears, bestowed such a benediction on his jaw as he could not receive without immediate humiliation, while Timothy Crabshaw, smarting from his broken head and his want of supper, saluted the other with a Yorkshire hug that laid him across the body of his companion. In a word, the two pseudo-officers were very roughly handled for their presumption in pretending to act characters for which they were so ill-qualified. While Clark and Crabshaw were thus laudably employed, the two young ladies passed through the kitchen so suddenly that the knight had only a transient glimpse of their backs, and they disappeared before he could possibly make a tender of his services. The truth is, they dreaded nothing so much as their being discovered, and took the first opportunity of gliding into the chaise, which had been for some time waiting in the passage. 
Mr. Clark was much more disconcerted than our adventurer by their sudden escape. He ran with great eagerness to the door, and, perceiving they were flown, returned to Sir Lancelot, saying, "'Lord, bless my soul, sir! Didn't you see who it was?' "'Ha! How!' exclaimed the knight, reddening with alarm. "'Who was it?' "'One of them,' replied the lawyer, "'was Dolly, our old landlady's daughter at the Black Lion. I knew her when first she lighted.' notwithstanding her being neatly dressed in a green joseph which i'll assure you sir becomes her remarkably well i'd never desire to see a prettier creature as for the other she's a very genteel woman but whether young or old ugly or handsome i can't pretend to say for she was masked i had just time to salute dolly and ask a few questions but all she could tell me was that the masked lady's name was Miss Meadows, and that she, Dolly, was hired as her waiting-woman. When the name of Meadows was mentioned, Sir Lancelot, whose spirits had been in violent commotion, became suddenly calm and serene, and he began to communicate to Clark the dialogue which had passed between him and Captain Crow, when the hostess, addressing herself to our errand, "'Well,' said she, I have had the honour to accommodate many ladies of the first fashion at the White Hart, both young and old, proud and lowly, ordinary and handsome. But such a miracle as Miss Meadows I never yet did see. Lord, let me never thrive, but I think she is of something more than a human creature. Oh, had your honour but set eyes on her, you would have said it was a vision from heaven, a cherubim of beauty. For my part, I can hardly think it was anything but a dream. Then so meek, so mild, so good-natured and generous. I say, blessed is the young woman who tends upon such a heavenly creature. And, poor dear young lady, she seems to be under grief and affliction, for the tears stole down her lovely cheeks, and looked for all the world like orient pearl." Sir Lancelot listened attentively to the description, which reminded him of his dear Aurelia, and, sighing bitterly, withdrew to his own apartment. End of chapter 13